Hello, Victoria, and uh, welcome to everybody to our True Prime podcast, You Didn't Let Me Finish, where we talk about all sorts of things, serious crimes and current crimes as well, and we try and have a bit of fun with it, as well as obviously treating things with the respect they deserve. Yes, we are former and present BBC journalists. I'm Victoria Mitzi, one of those, and I'm also a mother, a country bumpkin, new to the country, that is, so you hear all about that. And I'm a crime enthusiast and a podcaster. I think if you're new to the country, you don't quite earn bumpkinhood yet. I think maybe you're just a country bum. I like saying bumpkin because I want everyone from London, who is basically (laughs) everyone who's important, to know that I have changed my hat. I think you need to earn the kin. I think at the moment you're just a country bum. Okay, I'm a country bum. (laughs) And where does your bum reside? Oh, well, actually, I live in the country as well. But since I've lived here in the country since 2000, so 20 years now, I think I've thoroughly earned my kin. Dogging land. Oh, yes, absolutely. So that leads us on Which we're going to come on to, I think, aren't we? Yes. But go on, tell everyone who you are. Oh, yes, sorry. I'm Ben Ando. I'm a former BBC correspondent, crime reporter for a while. I left the BBC in December, and now I just enjoy talking to you. (laughs) That's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes, (laughs) Sometimes we annoy the shit out of each other. Only one. Yeah, I know. Apologies, everyone. Oh, come on. Not apology to you. That's not extended to you, Ando. You'd never apologise to me because you think you're so wonderful. You never let me finish. <laughs> you, uh, I, I thought you were going to get a jingle for that. Oh, give me some time. Do I have to do everything around here? <laughs> you do do everything. You do all the editing. I know you do. You're brilliant. And I applaud you. No, I don't. We actually, we have a help with editing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do we? <laughs> yeah, we do because you take so much work. Oh, okay. Because of all hard. the shit you come out with. All those producers over the year who hate, years who hated my guts because I'm hard to edit. Oh my god, not just to edit, to deal with. My god. <laughs> Am I a prima anyone, donna? Anyone who's listening to this who's eye rolling, <laughs> who's manically eye rolling. Hey at kids. The prospect of having worked with you. Remember, eye rolling doesn't count as cardio. <laughs> oh god, so we're fat and pissed off. <laughs> fat right. And rolling our eyes. We're going to talk about chillin' and murders. And if yes. you don't know what that is, it's the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell in Kent. 1996. And we are going to turn our attention and your attention to some details in the conviction of Michael Stone, which are quite interesting and need further explore- exploration. Yeah, I mean, I mean, seriously, you know, the, the Michael Stone was convicted um, of, of the Chillenden murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Lynn's other daughter, Josie Russell. But there is a lot of evidence suggesting that somebody else who is very well known to true crime podcast enthusiasts in the UK could well have carried out that killing, which we will talk about. So we've got that and we've got um, some upcoming dogging. So dogging on the, on the wireless. <laughs> Graphic. Yeah, we've got... Um, Dogging, we've got um, Lady Ghislaine, which was the name of the yacht that Robert Maxwell jumped off, which was named after oh. his daughter, who has now oh, been dear. arrested. She's now been arrested by the FBI in connection with the Jeffrey Epstein procuring young girls for sex scandals. And we've uh, got and another lady, Lady Justice, Chantel yeah. joining us from the Lady Justice podcast, which um, we are fans of. Well, my first question to her will be, is there a yacht named after her? <laughs> As your standard first question yeah, I mean, opening gambit always absolutely. is that's, that's a great opener I mean just go up to anybody and say excuse me is there a yacht named after you 
And Chantelle will be sharing with us um, some body disposal methods, which is a favourite topic, and we ask all of our guests here indeed. We don't treat anyone with any favour here on YDLMF podcast. (laughs) We don't treat anyone with any respect. Well, none of that either. Let's go back to, how do you pronounce it? G-H-I-S-L-A-I-N-E. I've done that off the top of my head. Is that right? Well, I don't know if it's Gislaine or Gillane. She's been up to no good, hasn't she? She has. Well, let's call her Lady Gislaine. Now, she is the daughter of the late Robert Maxwell. I'm sorry, I say it, Gillaine, for anyone who might be irritated by the Gislaine. I would would say Gislaine. Um, (laughs) I don't care how it's pronounced. Okay, that's a bit. Um, But so she is the daughter of Robert Maxwell. Now, Robert Maxwell, some listeners may know, was the former owner of the Mirror Group newspapers, and he um, died in the... mid-1990s I think he fell off his yacht or possibly rolled off it given how fat he was Um, but he was a he was embroiled in scandal he had raided the mirror pension pot so there was no money to pay the pensioners of the mirror and all his children seemed to have brushes with the law so his sons Kevin and Ian um, were tried for fraud although they were cleared of that and now his daughter Ghislaine um, appears to have been um, or is certainly has been charged by the FBI with them um, being involved in the Jeffrey Epstein sort of procuring children for sex. Uh, you know, he's a convicted paedophile. Uh, he killed himself in prison um, in August last year. Um, and she went to ground, uh, c- couldn't be found. And finally, the FBI has, by dint of apparently extraordinary policing, tracked her down to her own house in New Hampshire. She denies all these charges, we should say, obviously, uh, uh, lawyer alert. But she is accused of assisting Epstein in his abuse of minors by helping to recruit and groom victims that she knew to be underage. And these follow allegations from um, one particular young woman who claims that she was 14 when she was groomed for sex by uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And he would hand these... the, The claims are that he would pass these young girls around his very wealthy friends presumably to buy influence and that Ghislaine was his lover and also the allegations are joined in some of these um, sexual acts so specifically the charges are conspiracy to entice minors to travel to engage in illegal sex acts enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts conspiracy to transport minors and actually transporting a minor so she's accused of basically grooming lots and lots of young underage girls to have sex with Jeffrey Epstein if you talk to the parents of any underage girls who've been groomed for sex they would say yes having a woman there who was encouraging them to do this and enticing them and coming to pick them up and give them lifts and all the rest of it is pretty much something that enables the crime to take place so totally she's an accessory so from one dirty birdie to another Alleged well, dirty birdie. I, I, I just I, okay. There's there's so many things about this next story that I've got questions about. The headline is Devon off grid residents used axes right. to threaten doggers. I had to find out what an off grid resident was. Did you? Oh, did you? No, I know what an off grid is. People who kind of just get away from everything and just want to be on their own and kind of self sufficient and do their. I didn't own know thing. there was such a thing because the only people I know of like that are. Uh, gypsy communities oh yeah 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 yeah. well they're, they're not the only people like that then are they or maybe they are i don't know but they've got <laughs> their own postcode so they're on grid oh well, you can't be off grid with your own postcode because a postcode literally is a series of grids it says that in this doesn't it here that's a con the community on holden ridge has its own postcode 
Oh yes, and they pay council tax. <laughs> they're well, hardly uh, that, that, that that's, bad. They're the least off-grid, off-grid people. They're ever. more on-grid than me. I don't pay. Oh, they're gridlocked. <laughs> I do pay council tax. <laughs> Um, anyways, the, the story is though. So they live Gridlock. in these. Very no, good. you like that. We got there in the end. Um, <laughs> the story I am thinking is about three hundred things at once. I know, but that, that, you're female and you can think of lots of things at once, as you know. Well, my obviously brain, not. My brain goes into meltdown if I try and focus on more than one. I just thing have at a once. slight block up when it comes to you. You have a blockage. I have, I have a barricade. <laughs> is it? Is it like a furball? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I could see you there, sort of like meowling, saying, "Oh, I've got a furball." Every time I think of Ben. No, it's more. My, the image I've got is like some kind of drawbridge. <laughs> okay, what well, you raise your drawbridge every every time I cut, I heave into view. Yes, like if I had a polar neck on, I'd pull it over my face. Have you got a portcullis as well that slams down? What is a portcullis? The portcullis is the metal gate with spikes on the bottom that drops down <laughs> before the drawbridge comes up. You're starting to get more of an idea of my flavour here. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't know what a portcullis was. First off grid, now portcullis. I didn't You'd know be... what a colander was until I was about 15. <laughs> Is that because you had servants to drain all your vegetables? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about this story. Well, let's talk so, about dogging. Let's talk about so, dogging. So, so apparently this Halden Forest Park in Devon, woof, which woof. looks very beautiful in the photographs. I mean, I, you probably know it. Is it where you recorded your trailer for our podcast? I've you actually t- not been to. I think it's Hol- Holden. Holden. I don't because I had to say this on BBC Devon, and I found it quite difficult. Holden. It's Holden. 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 Holden Forest Park. I'm going dogging. In, I'm going dogging in Holden Forest Park. Do you think Park. that's what was happening? The men were just going hold on. I think people. The I think did. people are going there. And he's saying hold them, and she does. Um, that's what, uh, so, so can you hear an echo? <laughs> when we were when you I were just recording said that. When you this were recording your your sequence of our for our trailer for our podcast, you were you were walking on onto a dogging rendezvous, were you? Yeah, that's one way to get people to watch. Go and find <laughs> it on Vimeo right now. It's got Vimeo. dogging people in the background. My I video don't know what on Vimeo. Vimeo. Is. Anyway, so and on YouTube actually. <laughs> all these lockdown dogs. You didn't let me in. You didn't all- let me in. <laughs> God, I'm tired. <laughs> all these lockdown doggers are heading to Holden Forest Park. And they're meeting up there for dogging sessions. But then these two residents of this off-grid community who presumably are just in Holden Forest Park or somewhere nearby are getting very cross and grumpy about this. And And Daniel Bacon, who's 32, and Christopher McKinley, who's 42, run towards these people who are supposedly dogging with their holding their axes and threatening and threatening them telling them to get wrong what i've read about this is that they are saying that the people were allegedly engaged in sex acts i mean it's so obvious that they were dogging but i know you have to use that spiel but at the same time why didn't they the way that they're talking is and the way that this has got to be presented legally is that these men are the naughty ones for brandishing axes (laughs) <laughs> it says various guys. various members of the public saw you coming towards them with axes held aloft shouting and behaving in a menacing way they thought this is brilliant this is what the judge said they thought they were going to get axes through their windows or worse still their bodies <laughs> <laughs> well maybe I they mean, shouldn't have been getting their bodies out in public 
Well, quite. I, I imagine the defence would be, oh, I was going for a nice walk in the countryside when suddenly I slipped, fell forward, and my penis accidentally penetrated a man who was lying on the ground in front of me. Oh, is it men dogging? Oh, I don't know. It could be men, women. Who cares who's dogging? It says Exeter Crown Court was told that both men had asked the local council on several occasions to take action against men who were meeting up at the isolated beauty spot near Exeter. Not so um, beautiful anymore. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends what you're going there for, really. Anyway, they, they admitted possession of bladed articles and were sentenced to 80 hours of community service. And as far as I can tell, absolutely nothing was chopped off or needed to be reattached in a bobbit styly. It makes you wonder why the judge was quite so worried about potential injuries to these people. They were clearly <laughs> just being yucky. Maybe, maybe it's... Uh, I mean, is it legal to dog? I suppose the question is, though, have, have the doggers been back? I mean, have they been scared off now? Or have the doggers said, right, we've got the law on our side. We're going to dog like crazy in Holden Forest Park. <laughs> well, maybe they've been invaded by people in cat costumes. A cattery of people. <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think dogging refers to people dressing in dog costumes. Well, <laughs> I think it's a be, different thing. That would be nice. I'd like that. Yeah. I don't know why they actually call it dogging at all anyway. I think it... dogging's big in that for all our international friends, let me tell you this, it's something based on no foundation of truth, except that I've heard this. Dogging's quite big in the UK. Yeah, dogging is big in the UK, I think. I think dogging probably quite big in France and Germany. I mean, the Germans, would be, they'd, they'd be into dogging, wouldn't yeah. they? That's the kind of thing they'd do. Well, they, ask, let's ask them. You've got to hand it to the Germans. I think they'll do anything with anything to anything. <gasps> and I admire them for that. Ben? What? What about the Italians? They're dirty dogs. Yeah, well, they, they are. I, don't, I think Italians are, but I think there's a bit of a sort of strong kind of Catholicism in there that kind of draws the line at the full dogging idea. Oh, also, Italy's quite mountainous bollocks. as well. Oh, bollocks! What? The national identity stops you from doing something. Doesn't stop Berlusconi, does it? He was bunga bunga, not doggo doggo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. <laughs> Moving on. Well, I wanted to talk about dogging more, but um, I, I okay. Let's carry on then. Let's talk about head. dogging. No, no, no. I think that I'll just quickly say I'm all dogged out. Yeah. Oh, I could never be. When it comes to dogging, I'm spent. Are you? Um. Are you going? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I'm a 53 year old man. When it comes to dogging, I'm get out of the car, then get back in and drive off. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know uh, your thoughts on dogging, your personal <laughs> thoughts on it. I have to say, it doesn't fill me with any enthusiasm at all. I can think of nothing I'd rather not do than go out Why? on a cold night to some. Well, to it some doesn't have to be cold. It could be a nice dark, summer's evening. With some ropey old. Sorry. It could be a nice summer's evening. Why? Right. You don't have to choose to go out in the winter. Okay. I, 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 the idea, I think, of um, dogging, sort of going to a park and kind of doing some dogging. It just, I don't know why. You know, I, maybe I'm just a sort of. Um, a crotchety old humbug, but it just doesn't appeal to me at all. Hmm. Okay, Does it appeal to you? Do you I want to go it dogging? Appeal to you more. That's not an invitation, by the way. But are you interested in going dogging? Not with me, but just in general. <laughs> Am I interested? No, I think actually because what you said is true. You, my mental image of I mean, they're hardly likely to be attractive. Sorry, Holden haunters. <laughs> Sorry, doggers. I just think it would be quite grim to watch. And I think that's the point, though. I think it's very... It's reader's wives stuff, isn't it? It's the doggers next door. 
<laughs> it don't. used to be pampas grass on the front porch. Pampas now it's getting grass. in your car at 10 o'clock at night and heading to a local dogging location. This is something that I've heard recently. What? Pampas grass? Pampas grass. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a scented candle nowadays. One of those citronella things. Or maybe it's... um To keep the candle. flies off the swingers. It could be a candle made out of the fat of people you've murdered. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Okay, personally, no thanks to dogging. Too cold. I don't see the point either. Cup of tea and a biscuit would do me quite nicely instead, thanks. You know, this. I, I think this episode of our podcast would be a lot more entertaining if, if one of us said they were really keen on the idea of dogging or in, experimenting. And I think you I should be and... that person. Why should it be me? You're more I've... likely. You're in the age bracket. Oh, well, I don't think there's... I don't think... I think you're being a bit ageist about doggers, though. I don't necessarily think <laughs> doggers are in their mid-50s, are they? Or maybe I just don't see myself like that and I want to see you more as a dirty dogging man. <laughs> You'd love to think of me as a dirty dogger. <laughs> well, at least I'm aligned with everybody else. <laughs> well, it's not going to happen. Uh, well, maybe maybe if people send in their ideas, they, they encourage us. And perhaps if, if you're an avid dogger, <laughs> then you want to send us some, some you know, the pros of dogging what might attract us to it i'm finding this really quite difficult the pros of dogging so let's talk about let's go on to what makes um, you top dog what makes you a hot dog <laughs> hot dogging hot dogging that's what we need a jingle for do they all sniff each other's bottoms is that why it's called dogging <laughs> Answers on a postcard. You didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> answers, on a, answers on a dog-eared postcard. Answers on a photograph. I got a card. Well, it was for my daughter's birthday. And it was a printed photograph. So you could send us your printed photographs of your best dogging angle. Uh, you know, I don't want to receive that, do you? Oh, I've sent it already. <laughs> well, you haven't given... Have you actually given an address out? No. <laughs> P.O. Box. Victoria Mitzi, somewhere in Devon. <laughs> D-O-G-G. I wonder if it get to you. It might get to you. You talk over me, so you miss my funny stuff. It's D O G G Y 69. <laughs> <laughs> That's my P.O. Box. That's that my P double O box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so pleased with yourself now. <laughs> That's one that my now four-year-old would really appreciate. <laughs> right. So, so, so now listen. But the thing is, I've got to be in my bonnet about something, and you know what it is. Yes. It was a, it was a really powerful case. It was listen, the listen. Hold it. You'll let us know in a minute because um, we are going to hear a bit that we did a little bit earlier about this. So, cast your mind back to 1996. It was uh, the year of the Dunblane massacre, which of course was a huge, huge story uh, at that time, um, and it was also the year of the Chillenden murders in July. Well, let's hear all about it. Contentious is the word I'm looking for. Contentious. Very good. It was in 1996 that Lynn and Megan Russell, and Lynn was the mum, Megan was the six-year-old daughter, and her nine-year-old daughter, Josie Russell, the three of them were walking home in July 1996 from a school where there'd been a swimming um, gala, walking to their house, which was in the in the, the countryside in rural Kent. And it was down at the end of a lane called Cherry Garden Lane. And this family were, were walking back when they were attacked. Now, they were tied up and they were all hit on the head with a hammer by 
an assailant and this person then made off. Lynn and Megan were killed. When first discovered, Josie Russell was thought to be dead as well. And her father, who had just who had been, I think, in Wales or somewhere at a teaching conference when he returned that evening, was told that his whole family were dead. And this was shocking. However, paramedics then discovered a very slight signs of life in Josie. She was rushed to hospital and incredibly made a recovery. So, so she was still alive and I think now lives in North Wales and is an artist. But this was a, a crime that absolutely shocked everyone. Because This is one of those crimes where it just the whole nation sat up and took notice because you've got um, a, a gentle, rural, peaceful location in the Garden of England, Kent. It was a gorgeous, sunny day. It was a, a family, a, a mother and her two daughters coming back from school, all the sorts of things that make you think, no, this shouldn't be happening. But um, anyway, but the police didn't have much to go on. There was, they found like a... Um, that sort of a boot lace with three knots tied in it at the scene. There were some uh, DNA traces on the towels that had been torn into strips and were used to tie up Lynn Russell and her daughters. And there was a sort of a, a bloody fingerprint inside the lunch bag the attacker had rifled through inside one of the girls' lunch, lunch kind of zip-up lunch bags. But beyond that, there wasn't much. There were a couple of eyewitnesses uh, who saw a, uh, they described a, a, a round-faced guy with a chubby face and blondish hair and a sort of a beige car that, that might have been a Ford Sapphire or something like Sierra Sapphire, something like that. And, and, and that was kind of it. And it was quite a while. So the trail seemed to run cold. And then in 1997 on Crime Watch, they put up this artist's impression of the guy that had been prepared by a, 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 a sort of a, a police sketch artist working with Josie Russell, who had made enough of a recovery to sort of give a description of the man who attacked the family. And some staff at a psychiatric unit in Kent saw this and said, we think that looks like Michael Stone, one of our patients. And so Stone was arrested and he pleaded not guilty. But while on remand, because he was also accused of stealing a, a lawnmower, I think, while on remand, he supposedly had made a confession in prison to a couple of other inmates in the same prison. And that formed the central plank of the prosecution case. And I remember, because I, I covered that trial, in fact, it was quite interesting, because most of the time, TV reporters go in and do the opening of a trial, they might do a couple of key days, maybe. The, the, the opening of the defence and then the judges summing up and then they just wait for the verdict. But with this one, we tried to do it a bit differently. We, we kind of did it pretty much every day of the trial, reporting on all the witnesses who were giving evidence because it had been such a huge case. And the prosecutor uh, was a brilliant barrister named Anne Rafferty QC. And I remember thinking, I was in court and making my notes, I was thinking, this case sounds really thin. I mean, the evidence is really thin. And I was with a, another reporter, a guy called Adrian Britton, who at the time was ITV's reporter, and he was a very a good friend of mine. And I remember we both said, the evidence just isn't there. I mean, basically, the evidence was that Michael Stone was somebody who was known to have been a little unbalanced. Well, that's because he was receiving uh, treatment for mental health issues. There was three inmates, uh, Damien Daly, uh, another one called Barry Thompson, who had made various claims about these supposed confessions that Stone had made in prison. And then there was a few other people who had sort of seen Michael Stone on the day and said he had been behaving in a slightly agitated way. Well, I mean, Stone was a heroin addict. And I suspect that many of 
they went bad. He didn't behave in an agitated way. I remember one of the witnesses had been asked, what time did anything happen? He just said, I'm not very good with time. Because they, these people all lived chaotic lives. It was They were going around to each other's houses for cups of tea and maybe to take drugs. And, yeah. and, the, and the prosecution case was just feeble. And I think in the end, it just came down to, did the jurors believe these criminals who were in prison and who is claiming that Michael Stone had confessed to them. And they were saying, well, yes, we, we do believe these criminals, even though it later transpired that one of them had received, I think, several thousand pounds from the newspapers and so on. And in fact, the day after the convictions, I mean, I, I remember when um, when Stone was convicted, he was taken out of prison in a, in a prison van. And I was standing at the side of the road with um, my colleague, um, the cameraman who's still working, called Luke Collins, a really good guy. And we, we did that thing where he sort of ran along the side of the van holding his TV camera up. And sort of, they've got about three windows in the side. You sort of guess which window will be the right one. And I remember sitting in the, the edit truck looking at this footage and you could see this window. And at one moment, a camera flash goes off from a, another you know, print journalist who's running alongside with his camera flashing. And you just see Michael Stone's face framed in this shot. It was just incredible. And he was clearly just stunned. And, and in, in the, during the trial, Stone had decided not to give evidence. That was because I think... The advice to him had been that he is somebody who probably does lose his temper a bit. that doesn't come across well. He's he is, after all, a, a drug addict. He's somebody who has got mental health problems. So the decision was taken for him not to give evidence. And I think a lot of weight was put on the fact that if he was innocent, surely he would tell us, stand up and say, I didn't do it. But of course, nobody has to give evidence in their own defence. That's not a rule. Looking at him in the dock during the trial, I just felt he was kind of withdrawn. I think he was he was fairly sure, as sure as you can be, that he would be acquitted because the evidence against him was so was so thin. I mean, fair play to Anne Rafferty, she's a brilliant case of convincing the jury that actually they should convict. But he was stunned by all of this. And I think, you know, afterwards I remember thinking, well, everybody everybody wants the killer of Lynn and Megan Russell to be caught. This is just a horrid, horrid, brutal crime. But I think a lot of us who were covering that case had a bit of our knees thinking, well, it's all very well saying we've got somebody and he's been convicted and he's done it, but but what if the person who really did it is still out there? It didn't seem that compelling a case. Mm. You know, so this goes on. And, and, of course, what happened after that was there were a lot of people who felt like that, including Stone's lawyers, and especially his sister, Barbara Stone, who has campaigned throughout her brother is innocent. She's got a website going. She really has just kept on with this one. And even Michael Stone in prison has always, always maintained his innocence. Um, and so there was a retrial. And the second trial, the day after the trial, um, after Michael Stone was taken away to begin his life sentences, one of those who'd given evidence and said that he had made this jail confession, a guy called Barry Thompson, said, no, I, I didn't, he didn't say that to me. It was a complete load of waffle and basically retracted everything he had said and said, no, it was a load of lies. Now, Damien Daly stuck to this. But, but this in particular was one of those things that made us all think, are we happy with this? Is this right? Um, anyway, because this guy went back on his evidence, the Court of Appeal ordered a retrial in 2001. And, and this took place. But again, um, Stone was convicted, but there's so many things that make you think, hang on a second, for example, the boot lace that was found that I told you about. Yeah. Now, there was there was DNA on that, but it was found not to be 
Michael Stones. It could be somebody else, but it couldn't be Michael Stones. There was DNA found on the towels that were used to tie Lynn, Megan and Josie up. Again, DNA was found on that that didn't belong to the Russell family, didn't belong to Michael Stone, belonged to somebody else. And the, the smudged fingerprint that I told you about now, and the, 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 during the trial, this was talked about quite a lot. And the theory the prosecution forwarded was that somehow Lynn Russell had just, because you couldn't, you couldn't get a clear, um, there wasn't a clear fingerprint. And part of it did possibly match part of Lynn Russell's footprint, uh, fingerprint. It certainly didn't match Michael Stone's fingerprint, by the way. But again, there was a theory was that she had somehow just touched this thing with her finger and left this fingerprint. But, but the thing is, this, when, when the police found it, she was dead and this lunch bag was sort of inside, a, lunch bag was inside another bag that had been zipped up. So again, it seemed unlikely that she could have done that. However, the jury agreed a second time and, and they convicted him. But what, they, what, what we now know, of course, is that uh, Levi Belfield was somebody who liked to attack people with a hammer. Levi Belfield absolutely matches the description given by Josie Russell and by other witnesses who saw a vehicle leaving at the time. Um, now, the, the people who saw the vehicle leaving described this beige um, Ford of some kind, Ford Sapphire. Now, in 1996, Michael Strobe was driving a white Toyota, but Levi Belfield was sometimes borrowing his girlfriend's beige uh, Ford. Oh my goodness. And the other thing, of course, is that these DNA that I told you about, the DNA on the towels, the DNA on the uh, bootstrap, they're not um, complete DNA profiles. Um, they are complete enough to, com to discount Michael Stone, but they don't discount Levi Belfield. It doesn't confirm that Levi Belfield, they don't definitely Levi Belfield the DNA samples, but, but they could be Levi Belfield, even though they definitely couldn't be Michael Stone. I mean, the only reason that Michael Stone, the bootstrap, the only reason the bootlace supposedly was evidence against Michael Stone was that it had three knots in it, which is often used by addicts to, as a tourniquet on their arms so they can get a vein up to inject heroin. And Michael Stone was known to be a heroin addict, but that was it. There was no DNA there. And if, if surely if Did so, he have any previous? Yeah, he he was well known as a burglar. He, he used to burgle quite a lot to, to fund his heroin addiction. Well, that's what, as we've spoken about on this podcast, that's well known that, that addicts do that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he used to, um, his particular specialty was um, stealing lawnmowers and things from garden sheds. Um, he had also had, had um, claims of violence. And, and to be fair... Did that go also... on, his, on his CV? <laughs> if you wanted a lawnmower, go to Michael Stone. <laughs> Well, he's done the lawnmower man. Yeah, <laughs> but, but but also, I mean, he you know he, he I mean, Michael Stone is not whiter than white. He's not some kind of um, wronged innocent in all this. He was somebody who had threatened staff at the psychiatric unit where he's being treated that he was going to kill them. He was somebody who had previous convictions for violence. Uh, he had attacked a, a one one occasion in previously he had been disturbed while carrying out a burglary and had, and had attacked a homeowner with something that he picked up. Uh, and I think um, had hit them on the head and, and that again for Pilot's uh, idea that he was the killer but I think most of us who were in court felt that was a, that was not the safest conviction that we had ever seen well that's what I wanted to say when you are in court and that's why it's good uh, you know if, if anyone listening to this has kind of thought oh I should get myself down to listen to some trials do because I think it definitely from having done a bit of court reporting myself and that being how we met actually Ben isn't it you do get a much better sense, and indeed that's why a jury sits, isn't it? So that they can get a better sense of the case in the round. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's all about nonverbal communication, isn't it? You know, the words we say are only a small amount of how a small amount of how we communicate. And a jury will watch a defendant, and they will watch and see how they behave, how they act their nuances, and so on and so forth. And they'll, and they'll make an assessment, they'll make an assessment of victims, they'll make an assessment of witnesses as well. That's exactly how the court system works. That's how the jury system works. I know there's this apocryphal idea that when a jury walks back in to deliver their verdict, if they look at the defendant, they're going to clear them. If they refuse to look at them or look down or look the other way, then you know you're in for a guilty verdict. It depends very much, doesn't it? Because sometimes the defendant's so scary and they're clocking you that you're not going to stare back at them if they're a dangerous person. So, you know, in cases I've completely avoided looking at them other than when I know they're safely looking away. Haven't you? Oh, I, oh I, no, I, it's always good fun to stare at a defendant who hasn't done that. Oh, you're so brave. <laughs> I did, uh, funnily enough, I didn't do that with a graveyard rapist. <laughs> what, you didn't give him the eyes? He was definitely checking out, and we thought when we went on our numerous jury breaks that he was checking out the younger women in the jury, and at which point I was one of those. <laughs> so so hang on so the jury decided that he was checking them, them out <laughs> what, Ooh, for, get for, you. For, for, for what potential um graveyard romantic encounters you think you're all that <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it helped him to sort of snarl at us really <laughs> yeah i mean i think most defendants will be briefed by their barristers that one thing they don't want to be doing is a snarling at or be staring at the jury I didn't slip him a note. <laughs> Meet me in the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> back to back to these chilling murders. Yes, the chilling murders. Yes. Oh yes, I wanted to say something else. If they had such an idea about Belfield fitting the description as well, because I, I, you know, that that photograph that you're talking about is etched very clearly in my mind. They don't look alike. Who Stone and Belfield? Exactly. No, they don't look at all alike. I mean, and the thing is quite a few witnesses, Josie Russell, along with um, two other witnesses who saw um, a man driving suspiciously in that area in this beige car. They both described somebody with kind of spiky hair, blondish hair, and and, and specifically the, the thing they all said was a chubby face. And Stone did not have a chubby face, and I think we all know that Levi Belfield did. And at that time, apparently, again, he was known to be occasionally dyeing his hair blonde and he certainly used to spike it up as, uh, on top as well yeah but did they not have anything to go on to put the charges to belfield well i mean at this time belfield wasn't in the frame he wasn't even known about it, it was only after his conviction oh. for, the, for the killing of millie dowler that um he he suddenly comes into the frame as mm. as being somebody who was known to operate in that area and, you know, there, there are lots of similarities in yeah. here so you know levi belfield used to scalp around for victims in his car. Uh, he used to use a hammer to attack women. He always targeted women and young girls, particularly he he had a, a fetish for school girls as well. And of course, there was Lynn there with her two daughters in their school uniforms and so on and so forth. There are lots of things that add up to Levi Belfield, but that hasn't been tested in the court of law. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Levi Belfield supposedly, you know, in another jail, jail confession, uh, confessed in prison 
that he had um, carried out the Chilandan murders, but then he later retracted that. And at the moment, I mean, at the moment, we're in a situation where there may be another appeal, there may not be. Um, these allegations of the Levi Belfield's confession have not been tested in court. Uh, I don't know if he has been questioned by the police about it, um, but the chances are, he, you know, Levi Belfield's record is that he will deny, deny, deny because he likes to have control, and then maybe at the last moment he might confess to some, but not all of it. Um, and I suppose there is a question as to, yes, everybody wants the right person to be in prison for the Chilandon murders, and if Michael Stone is, in, is innocent, then he is a man who has basically served, what, he was jailed in 1997, so 23 years in prison for a crime that potentially he didn't commit, which is, you know, would, would be a shocking, a shocking thing indeed. And I think the problem is that maybe there are a lot of people who would rather let things lie as they are. I want to go back and I, you know, my interest as um, maybe it's something to do with my gender. Maybe um, it's also to do with, with being a, a sort of relatively new mother, the human element of the case. How much did Josie actually see? Oh, I mean, as far as we, as far as I know, I remember, I remember Josie had, taken a long time to convalesce. She had serious head and brain injuries. To start with, I remember the police had these dolls that they used. They had a doll for Lynn, a doll for Megan, a doll for the attacker, and a doll for Josie. And Josie would use the dolls to tell the police what had happened to her, what had happened, who had been where, and, and so on. And, so, and I remember during the, the trial, the jury were shown these dolls. And in fact, um, the journalists as well were, were allowed to go and film these dolls so that it would help us describe what had happened. Josie Briggs Russell didn't attend court, not surprisingly. Um, her father, Sean Russell, um, attended a little bit of the court case, but not all of it. Um, I think they've chosen quite rightly to, to just make a new life for themselves. They've moved away from Kent. I believe Josie now lives in North Wales. And I suppose, you know, like anybody who is involved in a serious crime, there comes a point where you need to try and do your best to get on with the, the life that you have left. Um, and, and that's what she's doing. I mean, to, I mean, she showed incredible courage because it wasn't really that long after it happened that she was able to talk to police. She, she took part in an ID parade with Michael Stern involved. She didn't pick him out, but the, the police artist who had helped her sketch the, the, the killer that she saw did say that she thought Michael Stone might be the right person during that ID parade. But that showed incredible courage and bravery uh, to do that. So, yes, I, I think... But fact, she, did she actually see the killer? Yes, she did. She was. I mean, he attacked the three of them. He told them, according to Josie, he told them that he would leave them alone. He just wanted to look for money. And so he tied them up and said, Lynn apparently had said, I'll go home and get you some money. But he said, no, he made them, he took them off Cherry Garden Lane into a sort of a secluded woodland area, you know, a few metres at the side so they wouldn't be seen. He tied them up and then instead of just robbing them, as he said he would, he then attacked them. He attacked them all. But so she, she saw, I don't really understand how she couldn't pick out the man and definitely say that Stone wasn't the man from that. Was it well, to do with her brain injuries? <laughs> I don't know. She was terrified. She was a little girl. She was nine years old. She was probably had her eyes closed a lot of the time. She was probably looking more at her mother and her sister than the attacker. He was very tall. He was. She said he was over six foot. Her father six foot. She said he was as tall or taller than her father. So she's looking up. It might even be that 
yeah, maybe her, her memory was compromised by her brain injuries. That seems quite likely as well. She could be the linchpin in, in perhaps convicting Belfield. Because um, if she I'm could not... mention he had a chubby face. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, she is alive now, and I'm sure that she must have looked online and seen pictures of Levi Belfield. I'm not aware that she has ever gone to police and said, that's him, that's the guy what done it. Um, maybe she just wants to put everything behind her. I can't speak for her, obviously. It's it's hard to know. I, I, I do think there are certain issues in this that should that people should think about. And certainly I do think that I'd be very, very surprised. I know that the legal team is given that Barbara Stone, Michael Stone's sister, has absolutely been incredibly strong and incredibly determined to, to keep fighting on her brother's behalf because she believes that he is innocent. And I would be... I mean, you know, things are still ongoing. It's, it's quite possible that it could be um, another, you know, appeal on this. I mean, one detail that I didn't mention before, one detail I didn't mention before is that that's that bootlace I told you about. In 2010, the Court of Appeal ordered that should be retested for DNA, but the, but the police had lost it. Oh. Now, there are rumours that it's been found again and located in the back of a cupboard somewhere, in which case maybe DNA testing on that. Of course, DNA testing in 2020 is significantly more advanced to DNA testing in 1996 and 1997. So it's quite possible that a, a trace DNA could be found that will give a far bigger profile and it could be a profile that does match somebody on the DNA database and that somebody could be Levi Belfield. So this is this is something this this is one of those things where you really should say watch this space because I, I don't think this story is over. I think there's more to come and that might be a good note to end on. Why would somebody do this? I think the real question here is why would Michael Stone do this? Now Michael Stone was a drug addict, he was a known burglar, he was somebody who could be violent with mental health issues. We've said all these things. What he didn't have was any kind of known interest in or sexual interest in children or women. He didn't have any kind of known predilection for attacking females in particular. Whereas if you say to yourself, why would Levi Belfield do this? Then suddenly it's all Levi Belfield is known to use a hammer. He's known to attack women and young girls. He's known to have a sexual interest in young, uh, young women and girls. He's known to be especially violent. And he's, his description matches as well. So suddenly, why would somebody do this is, is an absolutely key question at the heart of this, absolutely. I think it's also just the animalistic nature, if you can call it that. The, I mean, we've talked about evil. Is this just an evil crime or is it someone out of their mind? I mean, what, what could a motive have been? If you've sat there and you've seen this trial go ahead, did anything come out at you? When I sat there looking at Michael Stern, I remember thinking, I don't think that the guy who's sitting there is the kind of guy who could do this. It was a brutal, vicious, hideous crime. I mean, you must lack all kind of human compassion if you can stand and you can bludgeon to death a, a woman and then two small children, two little girls with a hammer, thinking that you've murdered them all. If you, if you can do that, if you can go through with that and then make your way off, have the presence of mind to get rid of the towels because the towels were found thrown in a bush some distance away. If, if you can do that, then you are clearly not a human being. You are not somebody who has any kind of compassion or not any kind of empathy. You are clearly psychopathic, psychotic, whatever, somebody who is utterly, utterly depraved and evil. And Michael Stone was no angel, as I've said, but I'm not convinced that Michael Stone could be that evil, that depraved.
Have you seen Levi Belfield? Yes, I was in league court for Levi Belfield's case. Now, Le- Levi Belfield is strange. He's a strange character. Is he? Know. Would is he capable of doing something? That, you're, you're talking about somebody who is capable of doing something as hideous and depraved as this. Do you think that Levi Belfield fits that description? Uh, yes, I do. Now, Levi Belfield, we know, killed Amelie Delagrange, Marsha McDonnell, and tried to kill Kate Sheedy. We know he killed Millie Dowler. We know that he hit these young women over the head with a hammer and killed them. Now, we, I've also seen him in court. I've seen him give evidence in his own defence. He has a slightly strange, high-pitched voice. He was clearly trying to keep it together and come across as this reasonable, wronged person when he was giving evidence in his defence. But a couple of times he nearly lost his temper, and you could sort of see in there that somebody who could lose their temper and could quite easily carry out these obscene, obscene crimes. So there was that element that you think he could be capable, that, that you know, I use the word animalistic, but that he really could do something as hideous as this, as you say, with the element of, um, with the factor of knowing that there's two small children there. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, Levi Belfield, on top of all of this, had a sexual motive. He was sexually interested in violence against women. He was sexually interested in younger women and schoolgirls. One of his ex-girlfriends giving evidence said that he used to uh, like um, strangling her. He used to uh, like her to dress up in sort of schoolgirl clothing. So, you know, he clearly had a sexual interest in that way. He was a sexual predator. I'm I'm not convinced there's any evidence at all to suggest that Michael Stone fitted that profile. And was there any sexual element in the Chillenden murders? No, there was no, as far as we're aware, there wasn't. There was no sexual attack on um, Josie Lynn or Megan Russell. There was no traces of um, sexual activity at the scene, should we say. No, no semen was found. The only, the only bodily fluids that were found were the blood of the, of the victims. And there were DNA traces, perhaps from, from surface contact, from skin, on the towels and on the bootstrap. So the sexual element wasn't one which which kind of came to play in the trial. So in a way that worked in Belfield's defence, because if if he was sexually motivated, would he not have acted in that in a different way? Well, no. I mean, being sexually motivated doesn't mean he has to gratify himself then and there at the scene. Um, you know, he could be motivated in a way that he finds sexually arousing, or that he just finds arousing in a way that means he feels powerful and he feels strong and those women deserved it and everybody's against me. I mean, there, you know, you can be motivated sexually and not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily about, say, the physical act of sex. So we've got a sort of double layer here of, of a crime, which is not only, certainly I'd say, more horrific for the fact that of who the victims were and their ages and the sort of the mother-child bond and a small dog being killed these these horrible details but also a big question mark over guilt and whether the correct perpetrator has been brought to justice absolutely i mean the chillenden murders 1996 24 years ago nearly a quarter of a century ago for me still casts a huge shadow over the british legal system Okay, well, we're running a bit late and Chantal is going to join us, so... I'm looking forward to speaking to Chantal. Chantal, hello. 
thank you for joining us from Lady Justice podcast. Thank you for having me. We're very excited. I, Can I, I just I, ask you something, Chantelle? Go on then. Have you ever had a yacht named after you? N- no. Is, <laughs> the reason... is, there a, is there a possibility I could? I don't know. The reason for talking, uh, asking you that is we've just been talking about the Ghislaine Maxwell thing in the, in the States being arrested. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that um, her father jumped off the yacht named Lady Ghislaine, which he'd named after his daughter, so named after her. And then we got wondered who, who else had had yachts named after them. As I said to my very good friend, Cutty Sark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chantelle, it, it, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So I just want to ask you, what are the elements of particular crimes that attract you and make you want to to podcast about them what what are the sort of the key features that make you think this is one for me it's basically um whenever i find one that i don't know of the victims like i tend to do my research through old newspaper archives and stuff so sometimes i'll be researching and i'll see like two lines at the bottom of a newspaper article and it will just be oh you know four children murdered and you're like uh and I've never heard of this case. And then when you look it up on the internet, nobody's heard of this case. So it's generally just forgotten victims. Forgotten victims. Interesting about what you say. I don't know if you know who Mark Williams Thomas is. Yeah. Because he came onto our podcast and he said it was the details in the cases for him as well. And that was how what motivated him. So it's quite interesting. All these criminal minds enjoying all these details. It's just one of those things where. I'm not so interested about the perpetrator. I'm more interested in the victim because, you know, they shouldn't just be left as a tragic story that then gets forgotten. It It's, you know, somebody's life, they meant some something to someone. And you do mention that in your intro, which I find interesting, and that's part of the reason why I invited you on to talk to us because we were going to explore the um, Kim Wall crime, which we've done in one of our previous episodes, and the fact that her parents have brought out a book and um, they wanted to talk about their daughter and, and honour her. And it just did bring me on to this topic, as you know. So what kind of crimes have resonated with the victim aspect for you? Generally cases where I, you know, I know the area. In my second episode, I did the case of Julie Hogg. I know the Billingham area very, very well. And her mum, you know, she fought tooth and nail for her daughter. And, you know, she was left behind. She was the one that discovered her daughter under the bathtub after 40 days. And Julie's son was downstairs. And it's just, you sit there and you go, "I, I don't know if I would have enough strength to fight for justice or to kind of just carry on if if someone I knew had been murdered like that. Not only does it take a part of you, if it's a child, for example, but I think it also just changes your outlook on life in the sense that you are partly dead. Could there be a sense of some kind of justice-seeking element? In a way, yes. I do a monthly bonus where I cover an unsolved case. The reason why I do that, though, is because it doesn't feel right as a podcast. I, I feel like as podcasters, we have a responsibility to honour victims and their families. And that means not just going into gory details for the sake of it. You're telling someone's story, so you have to be respectful. And if there is an unsolved case, I think you do kind of have a duty to try and bring awareness to that. Because the true crime genre, it's the big thing right now. 
you know, you shouldn't just be using it just for entertainment purposes. How long have you been going as a podcast? Nine months. So I'm still a baby, really. <laughs> we're infants. <laughs> we're, point, we're, we're lockdown flighty. Victoria's still in nappies. Ah, <laughs> oh, not nappy pants. Not. That's <laughs> oh, you, the oldest amongst us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been in in, in codty pants for years. Um, <laughs> Chantel, just, sorry, just talking about Julie Hogg as you were, um, and I recall that that one led to a change in the law. And I know, obviously, you call yourself or you call your podcast the Lady Justice Podcast. I mean, are you trained in law? Is it is is it the legal aspect of things as well as the victims that particularly interests you? I completely chickened out with my original degree and ended up doing drama. <laughs> so, what <laughs> are those things? But um, no, I used to date a criminologist. So I have a big interest in it. I, I spent a lot of time reading up on it. And I find that whole, you know, the society we live in and the shortcomings of our society, how can we change that? And sometimes things like the Julie Hogg case where you had the double jeopardy law, that was a 300-year-old law. That did not need to be in practice in today's society. So I quite like that kind of looking at how we change and we adapt and we grow as a society. And how have you found your experience as a podcaster now as having any impact on official processes, perhaps? Not so much on official, no. I do speak to victims' families and I do have people come to me that have the, you know, victims of injustice within the, the criminal justice system in the UK and in the US. Not much that I could do, but, you know. Was that a surprise for you? Yeah, very much so. And how did you react? With victims' families, I'm always willing to talk. I've got kind of like a rule, like, I wouldn't wear a T-shirt with, like, a murderer's face on. I could not face the victims' family. As long as I'm doing this whilst I'm doing the podcast and I'm doing it in a respectful way, that I can still sit in front of the victim's family and have a cup of tea, then I'm happy. It's the cup of tea test. Yes, the cup of tea test. Perfectly British. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, some people would say, and they have, they've levied this accusation at us already, you know, making fun of... They were talking about the Mark Williams Thomas involvement and then calling us kind of cash cows about Madeleine McCann. So you do get those kind of accusations. Have you had any? I haven't. I do do more historical cases, though, so that's probably yeah. why. Yeah, we do work slightly differently in that um, <laughs> you do a lot more research than we do. <laughs> we, just talk, we just talk about anything. You just talk shit all the time. <laughs> to be fair, I'm talking shit the rest of the time. I just edit that out. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we've spoken to you now. Talking of that, podcasting's a lot of work. And yeah. I know that you've you've got a lot of other, as me and Ben would say, um, our fingers in a, a lot of other pies. How do you manage your time with all the editing and the copious amounts of research you do? I do not sleep. Oh, was that it? <laughs> I live off coffee. That's that's basically it. <laughs> I have no secret. I just I don't sleep very much. Because you're weekly, aren't you? Yes, I'm weekly because I do bulk researching sessions. So I will go through and I'll, I'll research like two or three cases, one at a time though, so I don't get anything mixed up. 
and then when I'm writing them I'll re-research them whilst I'm going through just to make sure that I've got all my facts right. You've got a little one as well haven't you? Yeah I've got two little ones. So. Oh, <laughs> my house is constantly busy I my kids never sleep as well so I tend to always be awake which is, is, is a joy but that sounds like hard work Chantel. I'll sleep when I'm 45 and they move out it's fine. <laughs> sleep when you die as my friend says. <laughs> it's basically that I'm, I'm running on empty at the moment especially with lockdown but I think you know as things ease back into normal life I'll, I'll find a good balance but for now it's just coffee. That segues quite nicely into the body disposal method that I was hoping you could share with us. We are right, smart we, guests, it's non-discriminatory. Right, do you want the easy way or the far more complex? Both. <laughs> I want both. I, I, want, I want options. Oh, actually, maybe I should intro it with saying that because we're a lockdown start podcast, that we started with how to get rid of a body during lockdown because it's the perfect time. To murder someone. Right, so simple way, pig farm. You know, they eat everything. You could probably get rid of an average-sized man in about 24 hours. Yeah, the, um, you're right there. The pigs, are, they, will, they will eat anything. That's absolutely true. That was Ben's first answer to me when I met him at the old baby. The only thing is, I've, I don't actually know. I mean, if I've ever heard of a crime, a real true crime, where the, um, the pig disposal method was used, have you? Yes, in Canada. I think it's Robert Picton. I can't remember his, his name for sure. But definitely in Canada, um, he was a serial killer and he disposed of his victims using pigs. Ah, OK, smart guy. Do you know when guy. that was, roughly? Was it before or after Hannibal? Um, I believe after, but I'm not quite sure. He wasn't inspired by the film? No, I don't think so. He had a pig farm with his brother and he also owned, like, a pub, like a barbecue pub place, and they used to, you know, feed people to people. And did they find out? Sorry if I'm taxing you about long <laughs> crime. This was supposed to be our infallible method. Maybe, um, <laughs> it was the shoes. It was the shoes. If I remember correctly, I think it was the shoes. It's been a long time since I went over it. But I think it was like the, the shoes. Somebody found like a barrel of shoes. Oh. And they were like, what's so the not pig? actually the piggies or any sort of anything. He, didn't, he oh. didn't feed them any of the clothing. It was just, it was just because he left the shoes. Um, but all the human remains had been fed to the pigs. Oh, we're back to attention to detail now. Oh, that's a school. I mean, come on, not disposing of the clothing. That is a schoolboy error, really. Yeah, well, to be fair, you know. He's <laughs> not the most intelligent if he's just killing people. That's a fair point, well made. Probably got a lot on your mind as well. You're probably thinking about all these other things, like the neighbours. What were we talking about, Ben, at the beginning, that the most important thing is kind of not being seen lugging bodies to cars? <laughs> yeah, but, that, but that's the thing. It just needs one person to see one thing that's wrong and suddenly questions start to get asked and the whole thing crumbles. And you, I think you do need a bit of luck as well, actually. Well, unless you're just the village weirdo and then that's perfectly fine. Anything you do is weird. I should well, that... be fine then. <laughs> We did actually, we did actually touch on that as well, Chantal, because I was, I was looking at sort of the way people are behaving coming out of lockdown, and it does seem like you can pretty much do anything at the moment and say, well, I'm just got a bit stir crazy in lockdown, and now I'm sort of, you know, cutting loose. Is that the long or the shorter version? That's the short. The long is long. Okay. <laughs> is it a different version then? Say you've killed someone, okay? Right, they're in your living room. Not so great. <laughs> so. First things you want to do is get a sharp fish knife. 
okay? It's great mm -hmm. for removing skin. Take the skin as wholly as possible. Okay, you need to be careful of the fat layer though, because you will need the fat later. But you take the skin, go through a tanning process, then encase that in resin. You can then attach some pin legs for a mid-century table. I think it looked pretty good as an artwork. Okay, so that's first step. You've got rid of the skin. Fat layer. <laughs> you take the fat layer, you melt it down, and because artisan soap is all of the rage, you know, and with Christmas coming up, you can make a bomb. So you pretty much melt that down, make it into soap, sell it on Etsy. You've made a profit off your murder. Then <laughs> that down just sounds like a right pain in the bum. You've murdered someone. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, you might as well make to murder. Don't do it. Like, well, yes, quite. But it is. I mean, to be fair, you've got to. If you if you want to avoid a lifetime of prison, then you're talking about a few hard hours now. Most people think, yeah, that's worth it. I mean, that's a lot of artisan uh, candles and soap you're making there, though, of course. Yeah, but think of the money. Lucky yeah, you know, you're going to be taking a couple of days off work here at the best of time, anyway. So you might yeah. as well recoup some of that. It's a bonzo Christmas that year. <laughs> Next, you want to get rid of the organs. Um, this is where the pigs come in again. So, you know, just quickly pop down to the nearest field where you can see a pig, chuck it over the fence, you'll be fine. And then when you get down to the bones, there are a couple of options that you can do here. Remember that bone dust is deadly to humans. So if you are grinding them up, you do need to wear a mask. But if you're going to grind up, stick it in with some cement, build a garden wall, you know, use it for some building work at least. No shortage of masks at the moment. Exactly. Good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. There's another option where you can bleach and polish the bones and then reassemble them into, you know, a Stanley the Skeleton type thing. In the UK, it's okay for you to have human bones in part of your private collection. So you can keep it in your house if you want, or you can donate it to a local school. You know, always helping the kids out with science class. <laughs> <laughs> your kids are sorted there. Chantel? <laughs> Pretty much. I'm not saying that I've got a standing skeleton in the kitchen or anything, but, you know. <laughs> so that's pretty much everything. That's that's all of it gone. You know? Nobody and the clothes? Know. And what do you do with the clothes? You wear them. Yeah. <laughs> as long as they fit you. You have to find somebody who's exactly the same size and shape as you. That's it. So, right. Uh, you're my victim because you look like I do. <laughs> and I yeah. like your style. I mustn't be seen with trendy, fashionable new clothes around you. <laughs> I mean, you could easily burn them, but clothes actually burn. And it's, you know, wait till November 5th so that, you know, you've got a good cover for why you've got a bonfire. <laughs> Rose West was, uh, she answered the door in one of their victims' slippers, didn't she? And the mother was asking where the girl was. Mm, didn't so recognise the slippers, did she? No, she didn't. I mean, um, still, very resourceful, <laughs> eco-friendly Rose West, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's brilliant, thank you. That was very thorough. Mm, yeah, yeah, thanks, no, Chantel. If I'm going to murder someone, then, you know, I'm going to get away with it. Well, we're all fucked now, aren't we, really? <laughs> We've put ourselves out there a bit. Well, you know, yeah, no. take, take a chance, I say. <laughs> I hope nobody steals that because I'm so going down. <laughs> <laughs> Look, just very quickly, what about the future for you with podcasting or are you staying with podcasts? Are you going visual, perhaps? 
oh no I, I have a face for podcasting you know best to keep this hidden <laughs> but no that's I, what we're doing here too yeah, same as that I basically will be I've got another little project in the works which might be launching very very soon depending on you know how much I sleep (laughs) (laughs) with this um, Lady Justice I'll be having some extra content in October um, which will be on Patreon are you Patreon now no not yet I kind of held off because I I didn't really expect it to kind of take off as it did so I want to make sure that everything I put out there is, you know, well-researched and stuff. So I'm giving myself some time to make sure I've got a bit of a backlog. I was going a bit stir-crazy not using my degree. I'm completely obsessed with true crime podcasts. And do you um, think you've appealed to that listener? Are you, like, bang on the nose of true crime? Or is that your main aim and interest? Yeah, it is. Like, I listened to a lot and lot of podcasts before uh, I even started. When I, you don't sleep. <laughs> when I don't sleep I completely chickened out of my first attempt it was exactly a year before I started I completely chickened out and I wrote about why I started because I'm somebody who went through domestic violence and true crime kind of helped me get out of that so it, it has a lot of meaning to me that's amazing really it just is what it is like the the podcast is that I listen to I still listen to every single week I listen to a lot of them but I have a select few that without a doubt I can't miss each week they really help me just get through some really dark times do you regard them as friends yeah I do and what's been really nice since I've come into podcasting being able to actually talk to them as a peer it's very very strange and especially if somebody says they listen I completely freak out I'm a complete fangirl (laughs) (laughs) because I'm new to the genre I'm new to the format as well a couple of people that I've spoken to have told me that they've had some kind of trauma in their past that have led them to doing the same thing or maybe even just working in crime as well has that been a common factor do you think I think especially for people who have connections to crimes you, you, you're not into true crime because, you know, you have this gruesome fantasy for it. It's more you're looking for empathy. Like, that's how I see it. I wanted to see if somebody had been through the same kind of things I had and how other people react to that. And jumping into true crime, I didn't feel so much like a victim or a survivor or anything like that. I just felt like, you know, people understood that these things happened and it wasn't on me. Right. Did you share this? Yes, I did. Because it's one of those things that I would, I have to thank these people for, you know, helping me out with such a dark time. And if it wasn't for some of the advice, because I learned so much from true crime podcasts. So if it wasn't for the advice that I got, I probably wouldn't be here today. And as you say, your uptake was good. Yeah. That helped? Yeah, I I think so. I'm a solo host, so I, I don't have anybody to bounce off. I do everything myself and I do everything in a way where I'm proud of it and I think other people understand that that when you put so much effort in especially when you're solo when somebody sees it and that they respect it and then they pass it on which is nice and you've encountered that quite a lot have you yeah strangely I didn't like I said I didn't think it was ever gonna take off the way it did I still get really really freaked out I get a lot of anxiety when I look at my stats because I'm like oh people should not be listening to me (laughs) 
Well, they are. Absolutely, they are. Well done. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I'm really glad that um, it's proven to be something of a sort of a catharsis for you as well, Chantel. Because, mm. uh, you know, obviously people who listen to it get a lot out of it. But I don't think often people think about how much the podcasters themselves get out of it. And I'm glad it's something that's that's really helped you come to a better place. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. I'm a very embarrassing person. I should say that, we're, you know, we're listening to you and that's why you're here. So take it. <laughs> take it. Just take it. Take oh, the damn compliment. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go run it. I, I'm bright red right now. Literally red <laughs> in the baboon's ass. Good. <laughs> and, and with that charming mental picture. <laughs> Santo, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Really appreciate it. It's before been really good go, to talk. Yes, oh, thank you. Yeah. I second Ben. But before you go, what I don't do is show notes. How can people listen or contact or whatever if they have anything off the back of this interview for you? Just look up Lady Justice podcast. I'm everywhere like a bad rash she's everywhere that should be your jingle like a red rash on a red baboon's ass <laughs> we love your podcast i love yours seriously it's one of the the ones that have actually made into the every week listens oh that's really oh, thanks great. chantelle that's really well, we hate each so. other because ben and i go through our little rows so <laughs> it's a cheery version of true crime it's not so heavy there are a lot of very heavy true crime podcasts yeah, but we love that too. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good old deep and dark one, but no. <laughs> Sometimes you need, you know, something bright and cheery on a Saturday morning. It's really true, Chantel. I keep trying to tell Victoria, oh, let's do a bit of a, a few fun armed robberies like the Millennium Dome or <laughs> the Graf Jewelers. That's a good, good old Sweeney-style blag, and she is just not interested. If it's not death and dismemberment, she doesn't want to know. Pretty much how I am now. <laughs> to be fair, if anybody ever looks up my internet search history, oh, I'm going down for something strange. I know, but I start pulling faces as I'm typing stuff in and thinking, do I have to rephrase this? So, so the amount I've looked up, how many years do you get for necrophilia? You know? <laughs> <laughs> On that you know, note... It's what the internet was made for. Well, you know. By the way, just so you know, it's, it's only two years. So, um... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, there's a topic for the future podcast. Anyway, happy days. <laughs> See what you learn from listening to us. <laughs> Always happy to help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Thanks Chantel, it's been really great to speak on. to you. It's Thank been really great to talk me. to you. It's been pleasure. Great. Wasn't she good? Yeah, she was great. Really good to talk to her. Really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about this way that podcasting can be therapeutic for people and also people who have had their own issues, shall we say, kind of gravitate towards true crime. And I think, well, I wonder if that's true for um, police officers and barristers and lawyers as well and those who are involved in the judiciary because yeah you know we've we've certainly it's true for journalists i know a lot of journalists who've um, who become journalists because they've had some difficulties and problems in their lives very interesting and talking of which um and the theme of justice which cropped up quite a lot um we have got to talk about Michael Stone and um, i want to ask you a couple of questions ben um, i'm all ears you mentioned DNA evidence in the recording. Yes. That we've just, in what we've just heard. Mm. Um, how do you think that might be able to rectify the wrong that might have been done? Well, the difficulty is here that some of the things have been lost. Like, I think the, um, the, the, the bootstrap that supposedly was used by Stone to um, 
as a tourniquet on his arm when he took heroin either before or after the murders has been lost. But there are also strips of towel that were found at the scene, Saper, that were used by the killer to tie up the Russells, and male DNA was found on them that didn't belong to Michael Stone. And I think what um, Stone's campaign would be saying now, and what the legal team who are supporting him would say is, look, we need to get that DNA tested against the other prime suspect who quite clearly is Levi Belfield, especially given comments he's made in prison in the last few years where he suggested um, that he was active in Kent um, and that he did know that area. Uh, and I think really until there's a clear elimination of Levi Belfield as a suspect from this case, there is always going to be that cloud of uncertainty hanging over it. And do you think it's likely that anything's going to change? Well, it's, I think what you learn in covering lots of law and lots of legal cases and lots of appeals is that it seems incredibly unlikely until suddenly it happens and then, it, and then it's suddenly likely. And it only needs somebody somewhere to think, we need to look at this case again, there should be another appeal, and suddenly it gets listed and suddenly it's happening. And I, I think it will happen. I think there is just too much doubt over Michael Stone's guilt and there, are, there is too much riding on it because this was a crime that did shock the nation 24 years ago and I think that absolutely we we need to know as, as, a, as a sort of a, a citizenry if you like you know justice needs to be seen to be done as well as being done and I think we need to be sure that everything that can be done has been done to make sure that the right man is in jail for those horrific horrific murders. And within that how did the was the defence weak? The defence did its best. I mean, the defence was not weak, really. The defence was very strong. The defence said quite clearly, you're, you know, the, the evidence against Michael Stone primarily rests on the testimony of a prisoner that even the prosecution admits will lie when it suits him. It, and yet the jury decided to believe. I, th I think... I think there is an element here, and I, obviously we can't go into what the jury believed or thought. We can speculate about it. It's a free country, but we, we won't ever know what was going on with the jury room because that is, um, that is privileged. That is um, not to be reported. But I think maybe there was such a sense of sympathy for Josie Russell, such a sense of sympathy for um, Lynn's husband, um, and such a sense of wanting to do right by the victims, wanting to get justice for them, that... I think the jury in this case, or the juries, were so sure they wanted to convict that it was almost, they, they, they saw the evidence that there was against Michael Stone and thought, yes, that's what we want, that will do us, that's enough to convict here, because we really want to convict, we want to send, um, we, want to, we want to believe that we have found the person who did this, because the idea that that person is still out there is almost too horrific to contemplate. Well said. And to close, I mean, yes. is there anything else you want to add about I just want to say to everybody, you know, do keep in contact with us. We love receiving our interactions. Um, a big shout out again to the paint and poet who emailed us. Uh, we haven't got time really to read the poem out, but it's lots of fun. I'm sorry that he didn't really like my singing. Uh, oh, poems, <laughs> poems, yes. Um, yeah. I've actually, uh, yeah, if you want to see some of my poetry in response, Twitter's there for that. Oh, at oh you God. didn't let me finish podcast. Uh, you can email us you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com we're at ydlmf podcast on twitter yeah we're on social media get in touch with us um, and, if you've got anything you want to talk about and you have so thank you to those of you who have thank you for listening and um a few people that i've been listening to that i'd like to mention don't know how to pronounce some of it malice i've really been enjoying everything you're doing uh especially the cosby appeal was 
riveting. So that's exclusive to you. My brother's funnier than me podcast. Very funny. <laughs> Very good. Um, Slaughter Sisters, unpopular podcast. Fat, drunk and stupid. Always great to listen to you. Very funny. Um, Just Nurse Science. This is one, Ben, this is quite interesting. And you may you may want to use this these services for the it's for let me get the right screen up so I can say it right. People who <laughs> people who say idiotic things regarding science, these um these two here, hosts, Nick Nick and Lauren, comedically comedically shut down fake science found on social media and um the last one is one the one of the latest podcasts is like when you know can i get pregnant and when you know stupid questions they can't even spell pregnant so it's very good i've been enjoying that and um yeah if you have interacted with us and and critiqued us in a positive way has been great or even otherwise we always always listen and we try our best to respond you didn't let me finish podcast don't forget the word podcast at gmail.com it's been a joy victoria and i will talk to you again what's soon. been your best bit before we go pardon what's been your best bit of our podcast today today the best bit of our podcast oh, I, I definitely think the fact that we've now rechristened her jizz lane maxwell <laughs> no and i really enjoyed talking to Chantelle, of course as well yeah okay fab um bye. see you next week bye bye, bye.